Hey guys, what is happening? Welcome to Your Forest. And uh, yeah, coming at you tired, sunburnt, and mildly dehydrated, actually. <laughs> coming off a weekend of, uh, of shingling my roof with my old man. And uh, surprisingly enough, I managed to convince him to get on the podcast today. So he's he's been in forestry for, uh, what did he say, since 76 or something like that. So a long time. He just recently retired. Um yeah, so he was a senior level forester for uh, West Fraser out of Slave Lake for a long time. Uh, yeah, a few decades, actually. And uh, he was a part of a, a number of different committees. I won't name them all, but a bunch of different stuff, growth and yield stuff, uh, biodiversity stuff. He was on a bunch of different boards and committees, all that kind of stuff. Um, he was also one of the original team members uh making the new regeneration standards for Alberta regarding growing back uh, cup blocks after they've been cut, after they've been harvested. And uh, that was a huge, huge change for Alberta, and we'll get into that a lot more. Um, so, yeah, he's got a lot of great experience regarding policy and and how things have changed to become more scientific and, and better over time. So, yeah. Yeah, it was a really awesome conversation. Um, I wasn't really sure where we were going to go with it. I kind of figured we'd just talk about where he, how he got into forestry, um, where his inspiration comes from. Uh, and yeah, he knows so much that he started talking about how forestry and, and natural resource management has developed over time and how it started off as more of a just harvesting approach and trying to get the resources off the land base and how it's moved into a scientific approach of, of sustainable forest management and bringing back the trees and making sure that it's sustainable over time and bringing in biodiversity metrics and all kinds of different values and making sure that everything is, yeah, is as close to natural as we can possibly get it. Um, so yeah, we talked a lot about where things were and then we, we moved into where things he think might end up being, how it's become more scientific and all of that. Um, yeah, all kinds of weird little anecdotes and stories and just touched on a lot of different stuff. Um, it was really, really good, uh, models, versus the real world, how you have to get on the ground and really see and understand what's going on, how you have to enjoy your work, really enjoy it, not just feel you have to be producing nonstop all the time, um, how forcers in the past were more jack-of-all-trades, right? They were they know how to do a little bit of everything, whereas now we're getting into a more very pigeonholed approach is the way he said it, right? But more specialized, and I think that's a good thing in some ways and a bad thing in others. Um yeah, we talked about so many different things. I think you guys are really going to get a lot out of this. Uh, I know he's my dad, so I'm a bit biased, but also I think it was really, really good. And he's got a lot of knowledge to give, and uh, I think I think a lot of people will get a lot out of it. So the the conversation kind of started kind of funny. We were we were just sitting there shooting the bull for a little bit, and then he, all of a sudden he just started talking about silviculture. So it start, it opens up just with him literally talking about silviculture. Silviculture is the science of growing back trees um so that's where that's where we started we were just shooting the bull and he and he started talking so i decided well we'll start the podcast there so it just kind of started organically so if you're a little bit confused about what's going on at the beginning that's what it is he's talking about the science of growing back trees uh yeah as far as sponsors for today uh just the normal three again greenlink forestry they do resource inventory analysis so basically they take the forest and they turn it into a basically something that you can put into a model so that forest managers can understand what is out there and they can manage start management properly uh also another sponsor is the forest resource improvement association of alberta they uh yeah they provide funding for me and i can't be more thankful to them for allowing me to continue to do this it's been great and also damaged timber damaged timber you guys if you listen to one of the past podcasts i had tony waranger on he's the he started it. He's the the owner, I suppose. And uh, yeah, it's an apparel company and they are trying to support environmental sciences through the sale of their clothing. So they're taking 10% of their clothing, uh, 10% of the money earned on their clothing and putting it towards a scholarship for people going into environmental sciences. And that's going to be coming out in 2018. Um, yeah, if you go to the website, your for, or sorry, not your forest, that's me. If you go to the website, uh, damagetimber.com and on your checkout, you can type in your forest 10 you get 10 percent off and that's on top of all the other sales that are going on or whatever so yeah really really good stuff uh really good hats good quality stuff um we're getting water bottles eventually i think and hoodies all kinds of cool stuff so check it out appreciate it and uh yeah without any further messing around here is uh, myself and my old man 
Terry Kristoff. Silviculture, when I started, which was planting trees, mm-hmm. has grown leaps and bounds on the scientific and that ed- end of it. Oh, yeah. Such that it has fostered responsible forest management as well. Yeah. Right? And so when I started planting trees, I was planting these poor little trees. <laughs> they were... They were growing at the provincial nursery, and it was great. They had you know, nursery in the, for the province providing trees, but they weren't great trees because they didn't have the science yet. Mm-hmm. And as progressed, you know, by 1990 and 95, when mm-hmm. all the quota holders started having to plant trees, yeah. then all of a sudden it kicked it off, and we started to get more to a stock. We started worrying about size of stock and, and health and viability of seedlings. And then we started getting results on the ground, right? Yeah. And those results... Then, then we said, well, we have to measure how well we're doing. Yeah. And then it just kept growing. It was a growing thing. Right? Go, what do you know? Doing? We should be systematic about this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what, uh, what, like, when did you start? When were you tree planting? Like, when did you start? 77. 77. So, 70, so how did they, like, how big were the, were the plugs that you were using or the seedlings? Well, they were Spencer Mayor. Are we, we, we going? Yeah, I've been recording this whole time. I'm, I'll delete the, some okay. of the stuff at the beginning where we're <laughs> okay. shooting the shit, but like all of a sudden you started talking sense who okay. is what we're recording. Well, <laughs> I started, started in 77. I was finishing off my bachelor's education degree at University of Regina because in Saskatchewan, you didn't have a lot of natural resource opportunities. And, yeah. and so I did my education degree, but my sister, older sister, was a foreman at Simpson Timber okay. in, in White Court, outside, you know, Blue Ridge, White Court area. Yeah. And I needed a summer job. I had spent most of my summers before that working in northern Ontario. So I was in the bush, right? Uh, hunting, fishing, and doing all kinds of nice stuff, right? But uh, in 77, she got me a job pre-planting at Simpson Timber. Yeah. And so you spent a month to six weeks pre-planting, and, and I was pretty good at it. And uh, so they kept me on throughout the summer. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I went back to school in 77 and finished off in 78, came back and tree planted, and then just stayed on with Simpson Timber, mm. right? So did you, did you know anything about forestry before you started tree planting? Not really. Because you you grew up in, you know, eastern yeah. Saskatchewan where it's farm and... We didn't have trees. Not a lot of trees. <laughs> no, there wasn't a lot of trees. Uh, but I was always, I always hunted and I fished and I trapped yeah. and I did all the things that you would think you should enjoy in the outdoors. Yeah. And then when I was in Northern Ontario all summer, I was on the lake in a canoe fishing all yeah. summer when I wasn't working, right? Yeah. You know, I started working in Ontario when I was 15. Yeah. You know, and so it was a natural tra- transition for me to go from education degree, right? Working in the bush, enjoying it, right? So after the summer of 78 i just went and i actually worked at simpson timber in the mill uh. so i was in the sawmill i worked in the sawmill and that would be the trend i would work in a sawmill all winter yeah and once spring hit boom off i would be into the bush yeah. with, with the guys doing silviculture mostly yeah doing tree planting or tree planting supervision by then and and regen surveys so you were supervising tree planters before like so you were doing that as a non- Forester, as a non educated in forestry, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you yeah. had a, but you had your education, yeah, yeah. Degrees. And to be truthful, I knew probably more about forestry than some foresters do. <laughs> 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 well, I, I'd been living and breathing it. I'd been living and breathing it for two summers already, right? Yeah. So what happened when uh, the I think it was the Berlin Birth was given up, was offered out Berlin Birth. Yeah, uh, the Berlin Timber Birth, right? It, okay. it was around like a grand cash and that, right? Okay. At that time, Simpson Timber had a, a bid in on it, and I was working in the sawmill in Fox Creek, Yeah. and I was running loader, doing log scaling and stuff like that, and uh, they bid on this, this timber birth, right? And then right at the end... Birth being tenure, like... Tenure for, yeah. yeah. Like an allowed, you're allowed to go in and cut some An FMA, trees. right, basically, yeah. right? And... Uh, and my thoughts were is that, well, if Simpson Timber got this bid, I would just stay with Simpson Timber without any forestry education. Yeah. And I would just keep working with them for the rest of my life, right? And uh, But right at the end, uh, people at Burridge Lumber or Simpson Timber at the time said, the timber's not there. Mm. It's, not, it's not a good deal. Yeah. Right? And so they pulled their, they pulled their bid. Oh. And they did that in about November or December of 19... 79. Okay. And so I said, 
okay, I gotta get, a, I gotta do something in forestry, right? So I said, I'm going back to school, right? So then in January 1980, I started back at U of A, yeah, yeah, and I did a about a two and a half year after degree program, right, and got my BSc in forestry, yeah, and then you did a well, when I went there, I was obviously a mature student already. I you had, were, yeah, you were you were thirty when you no, not thirty. You were late twenties when you started. Four when I finished. You finished eighty two, so I was twenty six when I finished. Finished your masters? No, finished your bachelor's, bachelor's of right. science and forestry. But I found forestry really simple because I've been living it for four years, right? And I did really well, so yeah. I had I ended up getting a lot of high-level scholarships to do my master's, right? So yeah. after a year with the Alberta Forestry Association, which was downtown Edmonton, mm-hmm. I went back and I did I did my master's in timber management Yeah, and uh, finished that in 86. Yeah. Well, well, I always wonder what it was like back then, though, in the, like in the, in the, in the late 70s doing forestry. It's got to be a totally different game than it is now. It is totally. And I get a little upset with even you when you were <laughs> out there. Because uh, when we were out there in forestry, you know, we did hunt, we did fish, yeah. we did all the things that we enjoyed. We worked our butts off. We were, we did the time. We put in twelve, fourteen-hour days, whatever it did. Yeah. But we always had a fishing hooks in our backpack, and if we found a stream that looked like had nice grayling or trout, we would stop for twenty minutes and we would do that. Yeah. Right. You know, and uh, even after I started working for Zeeler in, Sl- in Slave Lake, and in the fall. I mean, the rifle was always on my shoulder. Yeah. And it was given that, yeah. you, know, you get the, the opportunity. opportunity presented itself, <laughs> you did what you had to do, and then you would, took took the rest of the day off and took the meat <laughs> home, right? But, you know, so, yeah, no, it, it's, it's, and I find now that, you know, you know young people are more tuned to, okay, we got to do this, we got a time clock, we got to get it done, and, yeah. and they don't take the time to smell the flowers and enjoy what they're i think a lot of them do yeah but you're not saying that necessarily everyone needs to have a rifle and go shoot everything no. but you need to enjoy yourself while but you're you really there. have to enjoy what you're at right yeah and you and all the people i know who are in forestry as a profession they're there because they love the forest they yeah. love the they love, we're the first line environmentalists out there mm-hmm. you really are right mm-hmm. so that that's that's what I see different, maybe a little bit different now. They, I don't think some of the younger people enjoy as much. I know some guys go out and they, they enjoy it a lot. Yeah. Because they're, they're the ones that are always sending me pictures when I'm sitting in the office. They're sending me pictures of yeah. coyotes and wolves and chickens and moose yeah. and deer. You know that they're enjoying their time out there, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, I think, yeah, I wonder what that is. If it's just our like my generation's idea of like, we've got to be hustling, got to try to, you know, do well and move forward or whatever it is. But yeah, I definitely agree. Like there is, there is a lot of that. We don't spend enough time. Like even here at Green Lake, we spend a lot of time when we're out in the bush, we're trying to get things done, but also I find lately, yeah, I have to take, I have to take more time to relax. I, I think it. it's a lot of change in how people view jobs. Yeah. And like when I started, we didn't worry about working alone. Yeah. We were expected to work alone. We were expected to know how to survive in the forest, right? Mm-hmm. So, but now you have all these regulations in place and, you know, like to even carry a gun with a company, you have to have written permission and all this stuff. Whereas in the old, I'll call it the old days, not that <laughs> far ago, but, yeah. but it, we just did what we had to do. We were jacks of all trades. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe that's a little bit different too. Maybe a lot of the, the people, young people coming into forestry aren't jacks of all trades anymore. They're not farmers, right? Like I came from the farm, so I could weld, I could cut, I could I could do almost anything. Yeah, you know, not great at anything, but I could, <laughs> I could do a little bit of everything, right? Yeah. So you were expected if if your tires fell off your truck, well, you jack it up, you fix it, you put the tires back on, and you go home, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. and we did that. You got stuck. Well, you you didn't phone for a tow truck. And I find that happens lots. It's a little bit of phone tow truck. But who, no. who, who, where, what tow truck goes into the middle of the bush well, on do. a muddy they road? Do. They cost you a lot of money, but they do. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But no, you, you just figure out how to do it, right? And yeah. even now, you know, you, to pull people out is dangerous. So we have rules and regulations and yeah. we have standard operating procedures on how to pull something. I can only tell you, we didn't have standard operating procedures. And I'm not saying it was right, but yeah. <laughs> but we had to rely, we had to be resourceful. We had to rely upon our own selves yeah. to survive and 
do the job, get it done, and get out, get out of the bush at home at night. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Like, I think if you think about, like, as a society, just in general, every every industry gets so much more specialized, and every position, every career gets like very specialized. You know what I mean? You you spend less time doing a bunch of things and more times getting really, 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 really good at one thing. And that's the only way it seems like companies survive nowadays, right? Is to become specialized in certain areas. So, but yeah, no, I agree. There's a, there's a competency to being able to like take care of yourself that maybe is missed because of some of that. But I mean, I think those regulations are good. I mean, like towing, I mean, people die towing trucks and people, shit happens that yeah. like that. I think, yeah, there's a reason that those regulations are there. And I think, but yeah, I, I know what you mean. And then the companies are getting bigger because they have to be, to be on, on an economic scale in the, on the world market where our commodities, so wood products. So they're getting bigger. Mm-hmm. So as they get bigger, you have to pigeonhole jobs. Yeah. When I started with, with Zeter in Slave Lake in 86, uh, there was four or five of us did all the everything. Yeah, we did the planning, we did the harvesting, we did the silviculture, we did the land, we did everything. All four or five, and we did everything right. Now we have twenty some people, and everybody has a pigeonhole. Yeah, and you know, sure, you know, the idea is for the company is oh, we'll cross reference and we'll get you know people who have exposed to everything, but it doesn't happen as much as if you are in a small company, mm-hmm. which Zeter was at the time. Yeah. And you get the chance to do everything. Yeah. And you're expected to be able to do everything at yeah. any given time. And, and that's what happened, right? So you get way more well-rounded in your experience. And when you, you learn, you learn a lot more and you get better exposure to different aspects of the business, right? Yeah. Not saying the good old days were good. <laughs> <laughs> they were fun. <laughs> they were fun. And uh, we got paid and, and uh, we did our job. We enjoyed our stuff. But, you know, like the new forestry, you know, I'm always so impressed with the new young people coming out, the skills that they have. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm his dad and I taught him most everything he knows, which is scary. Including my arrogance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, the the young people coming out, you know, like the people asked me one time, you know, who's, you know, like what what's the your mentors, right? And a lot of my mentors are young kids coming out. They 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 have great skills, they mm-hmm. have great ambition. I just don't think a lot of companies give them the opportunity to really express what they can do. Yeah, they get end up getting pigeonholed, right? So oh, that makes sense. No, I I I know exactly what you're saying because yeah, it's tough. I feel like people. Because, like you were saying, we need the efficiencies that we that require to stay competitive, and then people people get pigeonholed because they're good at that thing, and they don't want to. They say, you know, I, w- I want to give you the opportunity to get good at these other things as well, but that time is training time and costs the company money, and they don't get that opportunity more often. But I think you're right. I think in the long run, if you had people like, yeah, you need the specialized people, but also the more understanding the operations forester has of the silvicultural side of it or the opposite, or even the, the operations and the silviculture have for the, the mill portion of it, the more connectivity and the, and the more savings and efficiencies you're going to have in the end. Right. I think that gets missed out a lot. Yeah. Like yeah, I'm, no, I'm, I'm pretty specialized. Like I'm, I'm an inventory. I know how to do inventories and that's basically all I know how to do right now. So it's a, it's, I'm a perfect example of that. Right. Yeah. yeah no, they get way, I think at times way too specialized, but they're really good at the skills they have. Yeah. And with, now with the technology we have, all of a sudden, if you asked me to lay out a cut block, in the old days, I could walk for miles and do it, lay them out. But Are you going to give I, me the, the, the chain and compass spiel? Yes, it would be the <laughs> chain and compass, that might, well, top of fill, whatever. But, but for people, I, just, I don't know if I could fire up a GPS and actually do it that way, right? Yeah. So, so it, I, I've, you lose those skills as you get stuck in the office, right? Yeah. But you know, you're quite impressed. But... I remember taking a young fellow out four or five years ago to look at a road or to look at a you know, winter time to find a road. Yeah. And I said, well, put it in GPS, right? And let's go, right? So we had to cross a river and a beaver dam and got the other side in three feet of snow. And I said, okay, get your GPS out. And it wasn't working. Yeah. And I said, well, get your compass out. And I got this weird look. Like, what do you mean a compass? I said, <laughs> so pulled out my compass. I says, let's go. Right? Did, he, did he have so a compass th- with him? There, what? Did he have a compass no, with him? No, he didn't have a compass with him. Yeah, see, that's a that's a rookie mistake, though. Yeah, you yeah. Should, regardless of what technology you have, you should have a compass on you at all Because you can still do your work. 
Long well, not just you can still get your, do your work, but you can at least find your way home if you need to. Like, you well, can, no, but my expectation is I send you out there to do your work. Well, yeah, that too. And you but, should be able to do your work without all the gadgetry. Yeah, for sure. You know, just use common sense yeah. and a compass. And, and so, yeah, so a mix of old and new, it, there's nothing wrong with it, right? Yeah. No, it's it, that's what I was wondering is because like, you see like the old guard. And I think this is always a result of just I think every generation – when the new generation comes up, thinks that like not everybody, but you know what I mean. There's if you go back to Roman times, they even talk about saying the youngest generation is ruining it for everybody. You know, there are all these new things, and they're <laughs> they're lazy and entitled or whatever. And I I think that's pretty common of just human nature, right? To to feel like to fear that change. But personally, yeah, I think that it's I feel like things have, have taken a turn in the last like twenty years. From what I can tell, is that it's. It's moving towards way more of a scientific perspective and much more specialized. But I think that's a it's a good it's a good thing if we can allow people to yeah branch out a little bit and and see the full per- perspective. Well, as you do your job, is too. Say you're an inventory specialist, you get so focused on what you're seeing and doing and trying to put labels on it. But Mother Nature isn't very regular, mm-hmm. and we like we try to regularize it, reg- make it very regular, but it's hard to do. Yeah, and. There's always, it's not just the odd one-off. There's a lot of one-offs out there. Oh. And you have to be able to recognize that on the spot. And and that's the flexibility. That, that's where the bush experience gets in. And Oh, yeah, well, they laid out this cup lock on a GPS. I should be able to go find it. Yeah. And you go, when you get out there, you said, this isn't going to happen. We can't do this, right? Yeah. And so you've got to get a blend of both, right? Yeah. No, it's... Yeah, like, well, it's a perfect example is like I'm down, I'm doing inventory down in southern, like eastern slopes or whatever, right? And I've never, I've never had to do inventories down there. So looking at ecocytes down there, for people that don't know what ecocytes are, it's just nutrient regime and, and moisture regime. But I'm looking at stuff and I have no idea what I'm looking at. And like we had to go down there and I had to go look and, and actually like, I mean, we didn't dig a pit, but basically did the equivalent of digging a soil pit to see what the hell's going on because I, yeah, you don't know. And people would have, might have assumed one thing, and, and realistically, it was something completely opposite. So, no, I feel like you're right. There's tying in those those perspectives, right, from, like, one side to the other. Yeah. Anyways. Um, yeah. Oh, I had a brain fart here. Okay. No, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll talk. So I started, and I started planting these little trees, and I had a really good friend uh, with a forester in Alberta, Jim Kitts, I remember doing regen surveys with Jim, mm-hmm. and this was in the late 70s, early 80s. And we had to find like two two year old spruce or three year old oh. spruce to pass the regen survey. Right. For well, regeneration survey for in the cup yeah. block, post yeah. cup block. To, yeah. See, make sure we did our job right, or somebody had done their job right. Make sure the trees are planted yeah. and they're there and, and they're growing. Literally, we're scratching through three or four or five feet of grass trying to find these two little seedlings, which yeah. are about the size of a quarter, the height of a quarter. These and planted or were these? No, they were natural seeds. Natural, or, okay. You know, yeah. And you find them, and it's stock block. We did a good job, right? Right. And I know Jim and I, we both looked at it and said, like, these trees aren't going to live, right? This ain't going to work. Oh, so I see. So on paper, it was it was it was. Oh yeah, on paper, everything stocked. looked good. Yeah, it was oh. just the regulation at the time. You know, they were better than anywhere else in the world, probably, but they hadn't really identified the science behind it yet. And then, you know, like 10 years later, they found out that uh, they did a bunch of juvenile stand surveys and none of these blocks were stocked anymore. Right. And that's when the standards changed. And the government said, okay, this is wrong. Right. And then all of a sudden we had to improve the nursery standards, get better trees, yeah, planting stock, and then we had to improve our ability to keep them growing, right? So when was this? When was this? What year? Well, it Roughly? started in 1990 when okay. we had the free-to-grow standard came in, right? Okay. And in 95, all the quota holders, which were the smaller operators, they were forced to take their plantation to year 14. Okay. So you Before had to- that, they, all they had to do was get it established, which was the two two-year-old spruce. Right. We're, it's established. We're done, right? So, so so basically beforehand, when it was as soon as you could prove that there was trees there, even if they're only two centimeters tall, yeah. that counted as your obligation is over. Yeah. Whereas now the new standard is you have to make sure those trees are there and healthy till 14 years. To a certain, certain height. Certain height at 14 years old, roughly. Yeah. yeah. And then if the, that's true, then your obligation is done. Yeah. And if it's not true, then you have to go back in and replant. Retreat. Retreat. Yeah. 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 And so it became very obviously, you know, in a quota holder is that you know, we were doing aerial seeding. We, we would do 
2,000 hectares of ground in, in four days. So you were seeding like spruce seed. and Just pine and seed with a helicopter, right? Spruce and pine, right? Uh. And we were very successful at it. Yeah. But we knew we couldn't meet that 30-centimeter height standard at year 14. Right. Where it's basically trying to get through the grass, right? Yeah. So then the obvious thing was you have to get plant trees. So then around 1995, the province just exploded with planted trees. Yeah. And also we planted, started planting bigger trees and better stock. The nurseries had to get better. Yeah. There's ri- more rigorous standards on stocking standards, right? Yeah. And we started putting trees in the ground. And then the next step was, well, how do we make sure that they stay alive, right? Yeah. So then the province enabled the herbicide program, yeah. right? And the herbicide program, you know, on a lot of sites in the boreal north, you can literally get six feet of calmagrosis, which is a grass, yeah. six feet high in one year. Well, imagine what a, a, a 30 centimeter or 50 centimeter tree is going to do underneath yeah. 100 centimeters or 200 centimeters of grass. It barely survives if it does at all. If it does at all. So the herbicide program came in and all of a sudden we were seeing fantastic results. Yeah. I mean like super fantastic results. Yeah. And and all of a sudden when we put in a thousand trees in a hectare, a thousand trees a hectare were living. Yeah. And and for year 14, some of them were 15 feet tall. Yeah. And I mean 15 feet tall at year 14 is a lot different than Six centimeters tall or eight centimeters tall. Oh yeah, on the old standard. Yeah, okay. Right? So, <laughs> so that's where forestry has gone, and and it has been driven by silviculture and the ability to grow trees. Yeah. And if you ask me my opinion now, I I would say that we're really really good at growing trees. Well, if you talk to Vic Leifers, he was on. I had him on one of the podcasts. He would argue that we're almost. He he would argue that we are too good at it. Right. That we have. We're starting to grow these young stands that like don't even exist in nature because we're because they're going so well, right? It's they're so managed productive. stands, right? Yeah. But. Especially the pine is not so bad because the pine it comes back after a fire event and it's usually dense like hair on a dog's back anyway. Yeah. So our biggest job is to thin it out. Yeah. But on the spruce, which is a successional species and it it, it grows very well with the aspen, mm-hmm. right? And then we have to figure out the plan on how to get both the aspen and the spruce on. Yeah. And the planting is the only way with herbicide to really ensure, in my mind, that the spruce is going to be there. Yeah. And I've always said if you manage for the spruce, the aspen really will take care of itself. Yeah. Then you just got to have the metrics like you do to be able to determine what the mix is yeah. and what the what each piece of ground is contributing to somebody's allowable cut. Yeah. Right? But my gist of it is that as the silver culture improved, it allowed us and maybe forced us to do better forest management. Yeah. In Alberta, we've always said that our allowable cut is based on what we can grow. Mm-hmm. And we were using some of the old standards for what we can grow, and we weren't actually growing them that fast. Oh, really? Right? Okay. So now... Uh, through a group, sort of a group of companies and, and some really smart scientists from the Alberta government, we came up with the regeneration standard. Yeah. And that was a huge boon yeah. to forest management too yeah. because now we have a standard where we're actually measuring what we can grow. Yeah. Which is, yeah, that's what we're... Which is what the rules are. You can only cut what you can grow. Well, not just the rules, but it's also, it's ethical and it's moral and it's and it, it makes for nice forests. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, so uh, uh, from 1977 when I was planting these these silly little trees in the ground, yeah. and surprisingly a lot of them lived because spruce is a really tough species, right? But to now, at year 14, we got 16-foot high trees. Yeah. That's a huge evolution in silviculture, but it's also a huge evolution in forest management. Yeah. Because now I can go out and I can measure these trees. I can yeah. tell you how much I'm growing a year yeah. exactly, or as good as our numbers are, yeah. and be very close at making sure that I'm not overcutting. Yeah. I have a properly managed forest. What goes in is what we cut, take, take out, right? Yeah. And I have lots of people ask me, are we going to have enough trees? And I say, yes, we're going to have enough trees mm-hmm. as long as we keep getting better data and knowing exactly what we can grow. Yeah. And we only cut what we can grow. Yeah. We're always going to have trees. Oh, yeah. And that's that's 
part of the law. We have to prove that that's what's going on all the time. So yeah, we know we should yeah. be good. And it's yeah. part of the reg- it's part of the regulation, and, and that's what the Alberta government mm-hmm. is for is to make ensure that the companies are following those rules, yeah. right? And in the most part, I, you know, almost unequivocally, the companies are want to do that as well because it's in their best interest. Yeah. Well, economically as well, it's in their best interest. Yeah, in every yeah. every aspect, it's in their best yeah, interest, yeah. except there's, for short-term financial. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's not too many industries other than farming and forestry in this province that are long-term investments. Yeah. In farming, you buy you know, 12 quarters of land. That's a long-term investment. It takes a long time to pay it off. In forestry, you don't buy the land. You get the right to harvest, say, 700,000 hectares. Yeah. But it, if you want to be here in 40 years... Yeah, you have to manage every year properly along the way. Yeah, and the almost unequivocally, everybody at Alberta, the big companies, their goal is to be here two hundred years from now. Yeah, you know, like we in forestry, we have a two hundred year planning horizon. Yeah, there's nobody out there that plans two hundred years. No, it's insane. To- well, and at, and you know, altruistic. If you think about it, you know, really, is that realistic? Well, it's the best snapshot we have now. Yeah, like. We know 50 years from now we're not going to be doing what we're doing now. Right. right. Well, it's always changing. Like every, it's every, changing, right? Every year there's new research. There's, there's mounds, mountains of new research coming out every year and just changing yeah. policy and yeah. changing the way we harvest and everything. Yeah. But we always look at the 200-year horizon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in Alberta we have to do a forest management plan basically every 10 years. Yeah. So that horizon is always being stretched out. Yeah. But we're always adjusting yeah. at the forest management st- planning stage. Yeah, yeah. So when people ask me, "Are we going to have trees?" Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Unless we have some catastrophic disaster, and we've had some, like yeah. the mountain pine beetle could have been or still could be a catastrophic disaster. Yeah, or we have massive amounts of climate change where you know, like trees just won't grow anymore, and we got to go to grass and grain, right? Yeah, which I don't think will happen in our near future. But those are the only things that could really affect whether we can have forests. Yeah. And even if they, let's say climate change does come in, we'll just have different forests. It'll be different. That, that's, that's, I think that's the part that people are scared of, right? Is like you'll have entire uh, natural subregions moving like upward in elevation and you'll have, you know what I mean? Like people are afraid you'll lose certain specific areas that were maybe very and, unique. And you will, but. Yeah. That's part of the natural. In my experience, the forest is extremely resilient. You can burn it. You can beat it up. You can do whatever you want to it, and it comes back. Yep. It may come back with different species, and smart people in the field of forestry will figure out what to do with those species. Yeah. Oh, definitely. When I started in the province, aspen was a weed. It was something you killed and got rid of. <laughs> yeah. Now, there are a lot of people, a lot of livelihoods created by uh, harvesting and marketing a product out of Aspen. Isn't that amazing? That blew my mind. I never even thought about that in school until I think it was second year university and they were talking about how, yeah, up until like the 90s, Aspen was considered just a pain in the ass. Like it wasn't even something that yeah. people considered to be merchantable. And then all of a sudden you realize it's the fastest growing tree we have and it's perfectly good for any, any number of things, right? So yeah. it's, yeah, it, that it, must have been a huge change for like for the whole forest industry as a whole, yeah. It was, it was around 1990 when most of the aspen was was allocated and given out. Yeah. Uh, before that, it was a weed. We had, how do we get rid of it? How do we control it? How do we not just back, spruce and right? pine you were, you were managing for then, basically? It was eh? conifer, right? Yeah, basically conifer, conifer operations, yeah. right? But the aspen, uh, there was some aspen operations. Like, uh, there was a, a lumber mill that made aspen two by fours in Slave Lake in the mid seventies. Yeah. Yeah. It was called North American Lumber or North American Stud or something like that was. And, uh, the problem with Aspen lumber is that it's hard to control the drying process and it warps really bad. Oh. And it, anyway, you don't get perfect boards cause Aspen has a lot of heart rot and that. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so it went out of business in a couple of years. Right. But the company I started working for is Ziegler. In the seventies, we actually made. It was actually not aspen; it was balsam poplar. But we, the company, specialized in plywood, but it made balsam poplar plywood. Really? Yes, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, like you all still the, do that. All, all the hills around our house, they were all logged right. for balsam poplar. Well, yeah, and the poplar grows like crazy yeah, there. Yeah. It's insane. But uh, it was all hauled in eight foot bolts to the railhead. Oh. which was on the lake, yeah. and it was all shipped to Edmonton, which, right downtown Edmonton, where the plant is now, 
and they peeled it there. How did they peel it, though? Because poplar is notoriously rotten in the middle, right? Yeah, and that was the issue with poplar because you could only recover about 30% of the wood you sent in because it's notorious to be rotten in the middle. Yeah. But the stuff, the, the plywood and the veneer you got off of balsam poplar was absolutely gorgeous. Huh. Pure white. Well, how did you? How did you? How did you rotate it to peel Same the way. veneer? You, you chuck it out. You make sure you had a sound, a sound core in it, right? So the younger huh. stuff, the smaller wood, you know that, or the sounder stuff, we could peel, yeah. and they made beautiful plywood. It was absolutely gorgeous plywood. Huh. I didn't know that. But well, so okay, you know, <laughs> and rumor has it that even during World War II, the birch behind our house mm-hmm. in Slave Lake, which was big, like some of it's three feet in diameter. Oh, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, they actually logged that and they peeled it and they made plywood, birch plywood. We have birch plywood downstairs here and it's beautiful. Yeah. But the birch plywood <laughs> was what was used to construct the mosquito bombers for England in World War II. And the mosquito bombers huh. were the ones that, that torpedo bombed on the ocean and they they flew right along, right close to the level of the ocean. Yeah. And they very often got wiped out, but they wanted something that would float. And the bombers, uh, when they hit the water, they could land and float, and so and they were huh. light. Birch, so that, was, birch was very strong plywood and very light. So what what uh, what nation were those planes from? Those from Canada? It was a it was British a, and American, right? British and American, but it was it was it was, it was a lot of it came from Birch from Slave Lake. Really? Yeah. Huh. That's wild. rumor has it. I'm not. I uh, but I've, <laughs> I've heard this story several times, yeah. and it makes sense. You've been in our backyard. You know, you walked in the back. There's you know there's 15, 20, or like we'll say 30 to 50 centimeter birch back there, solid and sound. Yeah, about 100 years old, so it's growing really well. It would really, really well. peel nice and make beautiful oh, yeah. plywood, right? Huh. Anyway, so That's there's cool. a lot of diversity there yeah. in the Slave Lake area. Yeah. But those are some of the things that, you know, I don't know where we were. I don't know. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the point of a podcast is you have a conversation yeah. and see where it goes. It doesn't really matter. But I get, well, well, what do you think? Uh, we can finish it off. You're already rolling oh, on 35 minutes. But right. um, like as far as the future for for forestry, as far as like, where do you think it's going scientifically or maybe from a person perspective or management perspective? You've had, what, 35 well, the, years the, of experience Yeah, the now. forest industry, you know, in – the next few years and longer in the shorter time, even that is going to experience a lot of pressure. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of environmental groups and even the, the indigenous groups and uh, things like caribou and, and uh, issues that are going to affect the available land base to produce trees. Right. Uh, I don't think it's going to destroy forestry because mm-hmm. some really smart people, can do a lot of good things, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there, there's opportunity to always be forestry, and I think as a society in North America, we would be negligent if we didn't promote forestry. Oh yeah, in 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 as one of our main businesses, uh, we have I know in Alberta and in all of Canada, we have some of the best managed forests in the world, mm-hmm. and they are green. They are renewable and they are sustainable. Yeah, and uh, for us to to use a metal two by four instead of a wooden one, uh, or to use any other product that is non renewable versus a wood product, we'd be negligent as a society. Oh, I think it would be a downfall of our society. We'd see so much like just the increase in mining, the increase in like non sustainable activities would blow yeah. through the roof if you didn't use wood. Like even I know a lot of people look towards one of the big pushes. People are saying we should use hemp to build all our houses. And the problem there is 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 a nitrogen problem, right? Like you're dealing with fertilizer. Well, it's more than a nitrogen problem. It's, is that you've taken a piece of ground that was had lots of biodiversity on it and you killed all the biodiversity, mm-hmm. and now you're growing one species. Yeah. This is basically farmer's fields that we're talking about here. And right? we need farmer's fields to have yeah. to support society, but, but we don't it, need more of them. We don't need more of them to do something that Mother Nature and the forest does naturally. And sustainably. And sustainably. Time. Yeah. And with very little effort, we can have a renewable building product. Mm-hmm. It's like when we were just in Maui, they don't have plastic bags. Yeah, there's everything's paper bags. Yeah, and for some reason in Canada, we've gone to this plastic bag, fill up our landfills. They, they blow everywhere. Yeah, syndrome and paper is renewable as mm-hmm. long as it comes from a, a proven sustainable forest. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing. Yeah, right. 
and if you a paper bag falls on the ground in less than a year's time, it disappears. Yeah. Well, that, you, you hit on something right on the head there too. It's exactly what you said. If we don't maintain forestry in in you know in North America and other countries like it that have sustainable forest management, then it's not like we're going to stop using wood. We're still going to use wood. We're just going to take it from countries that don't have those standards, and you're going to be getting stuff that's that is deforestation, right? And, and 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 stuff like that, which is so you're supporting the exact opposite of what you're trying to do, right? Yeah. The yeah. If you, we're not going to stop using paper, and we should be using more paper and more wood products because it is renewable. Yeah, and to replace currently non. Yeah. So yeah. if all of a sudden we stop doing forestry in Canada, yeah, we're going to have to get that from somewhere else, yeah. and it will be from a, a place that doesn't have the rigorous standards we have mm-hmm. and the concern for global warming and everything else that we have in place. So we would be totally irresponsible as a society. Yeah, if we did away with forestry. Oh yeah, no, I agree completely. And be, I mean, we're we're both pretty biased, but it would, <laughs> but it would be it, it would be our Armageddon almost. It would be like saying goodbye to the world because it's necessary that we have good, managed, sustainable forests in Canada, and we should be using those forest products. Yeah, and you know, I I saw pictures about trying to clean up the oceans and plastic. Mm. Well, if you got rid of plastic, I mean, like, there would be a lot of companies that would really would like us, but it would take away a lot of that issue. Yeah. Now, granted, there are issues with paper made in from trees, right? Mm-hmm. There's huge power or huge water, you know. But if you build it, they will come, it, right? <laughs> so if you need it, society and really smart people will make it better. Yeah. In the old days, all we had was craft pulp, and you know we wasted a lot, lots of chemicals. Now we have CTMP, which is chemi-thermomechanical pulping, which uses more power, but it recovers ninety-five percent of the fiber. Right? right. So we have, we we can get better at, at yeah. what we want to do. Right. Well, it's constantly getting more efficient, more effective, and just getting better. And I think you're right. It's a it's a constantly moving industry. We're not yeah. set where we are. I think we're great. Like we're the world standards right now. We're we're right on top of them, and it's only going to improve from there right so yeah but having said that like so we plan out 200 years but realistically in 50 years we may not be making two by sixes and two by eights and two by tens anymore yeah we may be taking all that material all woody fiber grinding it up and putting it into a form just like those plastic deck boards you get yeah right you know you may be doing more of that bringing it down to its basic building blocks yeah 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 yeah. yeah. so it's going to change yeah it's going to change but we have a bunch of people out there who are called professional foresters, forest technicians, that understand that it can change. Yeah. And they're smart. They're young. They're, they're going to make a change. They're going to make good changes. And forestry will be here. Yeah. It better be here. I hope so. Yeah. I'm just so, starting my career, so. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it should be here. And, you know, people out there should just enjoy it while they got a chance, right? Yeah. And get out there and, and enjoy the woods. Uh not in my backyard is uh, a terrible thing that happened is that, oh, yeah, you can do all the forestry, but you can't do it in my backyard. Yeah. And we have to get over the fact that it looks ugly for the first five years. Yeah. Because, yes, it does. It looks ugly. But what I see there is a new forest, What's not an old one. Right? Instead, of, instead of seeing old trees, now you're going to start seeing all of the browsers and, the, and, the, and the, all the animals come back in. You'll start seeing rabbits and deer and moose pulling back in that you wouldn't have seen in that thick forest. And then yeah. eventually it comes back up. And yeah, it's, I think people, they have this idea of we want the old growth forest, right? We want the old, everyone thinks old growth forest. You, know, you don't understand that the old growth forest is only supposed to be a small percentage of it. You need, you need a, an even distribution of all age classes yeah, in order yeah. for it to work. So as a forest management planner, my job was to ensure that we had a proper forest management plan and the new standards ensure that we have all ages and types of forest going mm-hmm. into the future. Yeah. So we're not just saying that, oh, yeah, we'll have trees again. Yeah. It's going to be we, – we look at the types and ages of forest as well. Yeah. And you're right. In places like some of the parks where the – Wanted old growth all the time. Yeah. All of a sudden, Jasper and Banff, all of a sudden, there's no grazers. Yeah. The elk are disappearing. Everything changes, right? So you, if you, and if you keep putting out fire, then it get, there's no chance for it to change. So you have a bunch of old dead trees. Yeah. And nothing wants to live in it. 
Yeah. There are species that specialize specialized in the old growth forest, but there are not that many of them. They're very, they're owls and and rodents and mm. and termites and woodpeckers, right? Yeah. Yeah, and there's not a lot because pine martens and stuff you know, like that. So yeah. if you walk into an old growth forest and you see and look at the understory and there's not much there. There's not that much there to eat, right? There's not much there to for things to carry out their life cycle in. But it looks beautiful, right? It looks oh, like you got yeah. all these all these snags, you got young and, stuff and yeah, you've got yeah. old stuff and yeah. you've got it looks ideal, right? But it's it's not necessarily it's not. So if you cut it and come back five years later, all of a sudden you see this myriad of wildlife and things happening in that forest mm. that weren't there before. So I've I've been doing school tours for twenty or thirty years now. And I like to show the students that this is a cut block. This is a burn. This is a, a 50-year-old cut block. Yeah. And it's it just Mother Nature cycling through the whole system. Yeah. And if you had everything of all one of those, it wouldn't be good. Yeah. But in forest management, we want to make sure we have a bit of everything on the landscape and planned out ahead of 200 years. Yeah. So we always have a space for all species. And mm-hmm. that's part of biodiversity management yeah right? and, and that's, that's what we do now yeah, that's, that's, what we, that's what forestry is now is biodiversity management yeah it went from a went from a, a crop management to a biodiversity yeah. and sustainable system management so in it so if we go to hemp yeah we're into crop management yeah one species to get a product yeah in forestry yeah we have a one or two primary species that we want to get yeah. the product but it's enabling all the other species to exist yeah and that's the cool thing about forestry now. Yeah. Uh, and in the old days, it wasn't quite that way. Mm-hmm. But over time, it's evolved to where I believe we'll always have good forestry and we'll always have forests. And it is truly a renewable and sustainable resource. Yeah. So as long as we convince the public that that mm-hmm. is the truth and they can see the science for themselves, right? And, and we don't want to whitewash the public. We don't want to give them a snow job on yeah, it. Tell them right? the truth. Tell them, yeah, tell them the yeah. truth. And, and as science progresses, we get better data. We get better information. Mm-hmm. And you're part of it. Your job is part of getting better information. Mm-hmm. And the better information we have, the better decisions we can make yeah. to meet our end goal, Yeah, which is a sustainable forest. Yeah. But you're right, though. You don't want people to... You don't you don't want people only to show them the good side of it. You want to show them, look at this. Here's something we screwed up, maybe, and this is how these are the steps we're taking to fix it because we understand that it's this is done on a huge scale. So yeah, there's always going to be issues. There's always going to be a creek that maybe didn't get crossed the way it was supposed to be. There's always going to be like a, maybe you accidentally knocked down an eagle's nest that was that was supposed to be buffered, but nobody noticed it until too late. Like that kind of shit's going to happen, but. We we understand that we're getting better at that, and and that with time, if we're honest with the public, I think they'll come to realize that we're we're open and honest, and we're not trying to hide anything. There's no there's no conspiracy theory there, right? Yeah, and we still need watchdogs. We still need people who out there are asking the question, "Why are you doing that?" Yeah, because if you don't, you get very laid back, and and you just don't think about it you're anymore. You're complacent, really. Yeah, yeah, you get very complacent in your yeah. job, right? So when people are asking those pertinent questions at the right point in time you go oh yeah let's do that keeps you thinking and right now the the in aboriginal community is asking those questions mm-hmm. and we see a lot of that that's grown a lot where they're saying well what are you what, how are you affecting our traditional life our traditional use of the forest yeah. so now the companies are going out with the aboriginal groups and getting that information mm-hmm. and as we build more and more data banks of yeah. good information it's just going to get better yeah I still, there will be a real high pressure on the amount of land we can do forestry on, right? Yeah, I think it'll so decrease over time. It's only it'll gonna... decrease over time because yeah. people are increasing over time. If you if you want that effect to go away, take everybody in Alberta, move them back to Saskatchewan, Manitoba, <laughs> and the forest will be perfectly fine. <laughs> <laughs> they will do well. I guarantee it. Yeah, but you won't get to go to Jasper and Banff. You won't get to go fishing in Slave Lake, right? But as we get more and more people, it's going to have more and more pressure on those resources. Yeah. That just means we have to have better and better, better informed and better enabled foresters yeah. to make those proper decisions. Yeah. No, I agree. That's and, perfect. And part of our goal is to educate the young and get more people involved in forestry mm-hmm. that have that same desire. Yeah. And forestry is not a dead 
industry. It's a very much a live industry, yeah. and uh, it's going to be one of the premier industries that Alberta has after the oil sands are depleted or we can't sh- get a pipeline across to BC or whatever, yeah. right? You know, yeah. you know, forestry is the mainstay in uh, all the communities where I've lived and worked. Uh, when the oil patch goes down, it's always forestry that holds up the economy yeah. and keeps the town going. Yeah. And we have a lot of towns. In and it's consistent. It's, it's, it's not a boom and bust industry. Not a boom it's and a, bust industry. Yeah. We're there for the long haul. Yeah. We're there for long term and we're going to be there. At, well, they'll be there. I'm retired. I don't have to worry about it. But <laughs> I could be a... I can be a watchdog now. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's exactly. Yeah, I wanted to ask you one more thing, though, Dick. Do you have any specific, like, advice or anything you want to give to people maybe trying to get into it, or, or I don't know. Like, I was thinking more along the lines of, like, is there advice with people that trying to move forward in their career, like what how they should deal with their managers or how they should just general advice about, you know, getting into it. Well, I think you get into forestry anyway. Just be excited about about forest, about being outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know both two of my kids who are in forestry. They all fought going into forestry. I don't want to do that because mom and dad did that. <laughs> yeah. But the bottom line is that what do you want to do? Well, I'd like to work outside. Oh, well, you have a choice. Yeah, <laughs> and not too many choices. And forestry is one of those great things where you can spend a lot of time outdoors if you so wish. Right. Yeah. And uh, anybody who's uh, interested in being outside and doing stuff and getting a good job in forestry, I would encourage them to go into the forestry program, right? Mm -hmm. Because the forestry program at U of A or at Nate or these places, they focus on giving you jobs in the forest. And I don't know of any student out there who hasn't got a good summer job in forestry. Yeah. Right? Some of the other branches, they you may not get if you're a biologist or that you got to scramble right some mm-hmm. of the other scientists even the natural sciences you got to scramble yeah. to get a job but in forestry there's never any problem getting a summer job yeah and getting good employment and and at least i haven't seen it i haven't seen people have problems with it but not to say it may happen some people might have trouble but if you have trouble getting a summer job it's because you're not willing to move to a different town yeah. somewhere or something and that's but the one thing is if you're in forestry you got to go to the forest. Yeah, exactly. You got <laughs> yeah. to see a tree now and then, right? So if you're a Starbucks person and you, you got to have Starbucks, eh, you may not want to go into forestry, right? Might not be for you, yeah. yeah. But, you know. That being said, though, as time goes on, like, we're spending more and more time in the office, right? That's where the decisions are made. That's where the, that's where the conversations are being had. And, and I find the field work that's being done is, is more just a, a calibration thing and an enjoyment thing more than anything else. And then what's, it seems like it. You know what I mean? Well, a lot of work is being done in the office. There's technology, but if you want to be a good forester, yeah, yeah, you got to get out on the ground and you got to see it. You got to kick the dirt. You got to yeah. knock on the wood. You you got you got to really see for yourself. Mm-hmm. And because the forest is so diverse, nothing ever and standard and dynamic yeah, and dynamic. There's yeah. no standard out there. So what you see on paper. 10 years later could be totally different. Big time. So you really got to go out and look at it and you, to do well at it, you got to understand and you got to be able to sort of read between the lines yeah. of how and understand how Mother Nature is trying to make this whole thing work, right? Models only tell you so much. You got to get out there yeah. and see the connection. Yeah. And models, like we have lots of models and and we, we always say of models, it's garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> So if you have garbage data going in, it's going to be a mess coming out. Is that out. what you say? I feel like you use a different word. Oh, no. no that's, that's <laughs> but garbage in, garbage out. And uh, But we're getting a lot better data. Uh, stuff done here at GreenLink, the inventory data is just phenomenal. Where you can measure a pen laid on the ground, basically. With the road sensing, yeah. Yeah. So you, you go like, it's the first time in history we've got inventories where we know exactly what's out there. Mm-hmm. We know all the big trees, the little trees, the enemy trees, the species, the size, the age. The moisture, the nutrient yeah. regime, the so, aspect, the so everything. One of the things I think in forestry is that's going to change, especially in the boil, is we're going to go from a monoculture type forestry where we, okay, you cut pine, you put back pine. Yeah. Well, pine's not, not a great example because pine will come back straight pine. Yeah. But when you cut spruce, you put back spruce. Yeah. Well, really, what we should be doing is going to be a mixture. It's going to be every cup box is going to have a magic formula. 
and you're going to put back so much alder, so much willow, so much aspen, so much damp, so much birch, so much spruce, and maybe some pine, and you're going to have these magic formulas. Yeah. The, t- the challenge will be for the modelers to learn how to model this mosaic. Oh, yeah. So what I'm talking about is we, in Alberta, we've practiced even age forestry, one age, and we take that piece of land and we grow it like a crop through 60, 80, 100 years. Yeah. What I'm speaking about in the boreal, where we have lots of mixed woods, we're going to have to get a handle upon doing uneven age forestry. Yeah. How do we grow multi-aged, multi-species stands and harvest them and reap off the benefits of it throughout a whole rotation? Maybe yeah. two. Let's explain years. that real, just like the multi-age. So instead of basically instead of doing a, a clear cut, you're doing selective. You're selectively harvesting pieces of it. Yeah, but it's actually not what you call selective harvesting yeah. where you say you go in and take out three trees. I think you have to selectively manage the land base mm-hmm. so that you have multiple species on that land. Right. So say aspen, balsam, poplar, and spruce, and pine. They're yeah. all on that same land. Yeah. But they all grow differently. They all get mature at different ages, right? Yeah. And the spruce likes to come in underneath the aspen canopy and does well. Yeah. So how do you manage the understory spruce mm-hmm. and use that to your advantage and harvest the overstory aspen? And then as the understory spruce grows up, it's going to get different species in. So how do you manage that mosaic where you don't just go into the land base one time every 100 years? Yeah. You may go into it five times in 100 years right. and reap the benefits of all that extra growth. Yeah. It may have less impact that way. Well, as the land base shrinks because of increasing pressures from other uses, whether it's oil and gas or or uh, species at risk, we're going to need as a, a as an industry to get better at getting more off what we have. Yeah, and yeah, sure, farmers do it by applying chemicals and herbicides and a bunch of other stuff to the land. Mm-hmm. I think foresters have this massive opportunity to properly manage the mixed wood part of it yeah, and grow multiple species, multiple ages mm-hmm. of species. So you can have spruce and aspen and maybe some pine and some blows and popper all in the land at one time and go in there and start managing it. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. And it's not going to be so much at an individual cut block level. Yeah. It may be at a landscape level because at a cut block level, constant access creates issues for species. So yeah. You know, when we have 100% access all the time, it ends up it's not, doesn't be natural. The, it, all the species that are hunted and are preyed upon, they end up getting hammered, right? Yeah. So we want to you know, not be there all the time, yeah. but we want to be there more. It's an interesting approach. I never even thought about that way of doing things. But yeah, that could be, it would be interesting to see how that develops in the next like 20 years, right? It's developing now. Yeah. It's developing now because we realize especially in the mixed boil mix where we have spruce that comes up underneath the aspen mm-hmm. and we have two tenures. The government has given someone exclusive use of the aspen and someone exclusive use of the spruce yeah. and the tenures aren't mixed. So we always have this infighting, but as we start managing the land on a holistic basis, we start saying, well, we can do this here and there and there and here and take advantage of what mother nature has given you, which is the understory growth. Yeah. And, and start, developing that concept and those models to verify that, okay, this will give us X number of wood. In over, and I know that you'll get more product off of a single unit of land mm-hmm. by managing more, multiple species than if you just manage for one species. How do you know that? The numbers have shown that. Because you've done it your entire life? Yeah, <laughs> I've done it my entire life. But the RSA survey still that. Yeah, the RSA surveys, which are regenerated standard of Alberta, if you go into a pure spruce stand and you try to make a pure spruce stand, we can do that. Put enough chemicals and brushing out there, we can make a pure spruce stand. Yeah, you get less volume per hectare. Yeah, than if you grow aspen and spruce together. Yeah, and that's how they naturally grow. So that's where they naturally grow. Yeah. So the numbers are showing that the numbers that we're collecting for the government yeah. show that you can do it. Yeah. Well, let's, okay, let's, let's figure out how to do it. I'm excited right? to see where it ends up in the end here for sure. Oh, it, there's lots of smart people out there oh, that yeah. can model it and, and it'll get there. It, yeah. It'll get there. 
So you thought you were worried about this. This is a, we're almost coming up on an hour here. We got to shut this thing down before yeah, people we can get shut bored. Any time. <laughs> I'm, I'm retired. I got lots to do. <laughs> but yeah, this worked out awesome. Right. I think. Uh, I think. Yeah, the things. The things. Honestly, the things that you had to say were 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 right on the money. Like they. That's the type of stuff that I was hoping you talk about. Just your experience. So you got 35 years of, or roughly 35 years of, of forestry experience, and and you know, I think you really understand what's going on. So. Yeah, and and you know my experience is limited to mostly the boreal, right? And some of the foothills and the boreal. So I think in other areas of the province, uh, there's people with better experience. Like when you get down into subalpine and that, it's a totally different experience. What do you mean you don't know everything? No. (laughs) (laughs) Contrary to what uh, Mum might say, you think (laughs) you're you're going to edit all this crap out, aren't you? Right? I'll start swearing here, and you've got to you've got to get rid of it then. Do whatever I want. We'll yeah, see. No, no, I have, I've got the right to say no. <laughs> anyways, we'll, yeah. I'll, we'll 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 end it there. But anyways, I appreciate you coming on. This is awesome. I know it was uh, okay. kind of hesitant to do it, but it worked out really good. I think. Well, we'll see. All right. Okay. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Thanks a lot for listening, guys. Hope you guys liked that. And uh, yeah, if you got any questions for myself or my dad, just uh, shoot me an email: yourforestpodcast at gmail Happy to get them. Really like receiving the emails. Yeah, it just tells me that you guys are listening, you're engaged, and you like what's coming out. So I like to hear it. Um, yeah, you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, all that good stuff. I think I'm on Twitter too. Kind of suck at Twitter, but whatever. <laughs> and uh, yeah, if you guys uh, are on iTunes, can you, if you could please rate and review and leave a comment if you want. That would help me out a lot. You guys have no idea how much it helps me out. That's where most of the uh, traffic comes from, it seems like. But yeah, appreciate the help, guys. And uh, yeah, we'll see you see you soon with another episode. Take it easy.